Welcome to Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. This is your host, Dave Alpa, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. I hope everybody enjoyed their Labor Day weekend. During this episode, we're going to discuss some events that happened during the labor movement. The first incident that we're going to discuss is the Hannah Pepe Massacre. On September 9th, 1924, what began as a simple arrest by Kauai sheriffs at the Filipino Strike Headquarters in Hannah Pepe quickly turned deadly. Sheriffs had been sent to retrieve two Filipino laborers being held captives by strikers in a Japanese language school. A struggle broke out between the strikers and the authorities, and minutes later, 16 strikers were shot dead and killed, many by deputized sharpshooters hiding on a nearby hill. No one knows who made the first move in the incident that has become known as a Hana Pepe Massacre. Neither side was completely innocent, and there were no real after-effects of the strike. Strikers did not win concessions until decades later, and the massacre did not spur further strikes or even a public outcry. The Japanese laborers were the first to strike in 1909, paving the way for labor unions in Hawaii. In 1920, they formed the Federation of Japanese laborers which carried out another big strike in Oahu that year. Although the striking members were primarily Japanese, Filipino workers led by a labor organizer named Pablo Menlapit also joined. The most important objective was doubling the minimum wage from $1 a day to $2, almost $13 to $25 in, in 2009 dollars. They also wanted an 8-hour workday down from 10 hours to 12 hours and overtime pay. Lastly, they advocated for equal pay between men and women and collective bargaining rights. These demands were also brought by the Japanese labor organization. The strikers from Kalawa and Makawali plantations set up two strike headquarters. Approximately 150 rented out a Japanese-language school in Hanapepe in late July or early August, while the more than 400 remaining strikers stationed themselves in the He-Fat Rice Warehouse building in Kapa'a, which still stands today. These two towns were chosen because they were the only two on Kauai that were not plantation towns controlled by the Honolulu Sugar Plantation Association. During the 1920s, labor organizations were based on nationality, so the Japanese and Filipino laborers on Kauai did not collaborate closely, even though they were organizing for the same changes. On September 8, 1924, two Ilocono Filipinos from the Makawal Plantation, each about 18 years old, rode into the Hanapepe on their bicycles to buy a pair of $4 shoes. On their way back to the plantation, the two passed the strike headquarters, where they were apparently attacked by Vizian strikers and held inside the schoolhouse against their will. Bushnell speculates that the men could have taken them hostage because they were non-striking Ilocanos. 
When friends of the young men realized they were missing, they reported them to the Kauai Sheriff's Deputy Sheriff William Crowell, went to the headquarters that evening and demanded to see the two. Strikers produced the two men who, it is believed, were coerced into saying they wanted to be there. Crowell tried to convince the strikers to let him take the two, but they refused. He left and went to the county attorney where he was given an arrest warrant, not for the strikers, but for the captives, as a way to free them. He returned the following morning with approximately 40 other men, many of whom were hunters and recently deputized sharpshooters, their weapons and training paid for by the Honolulu Sugar Plantation Association. Following is from an official account given by one of Cronwell's sheriffs who was present at the schoolhouse. Cronwell went in, showed the warrant, and demanded that the strikers turn over their captives. The two men were released and were leaving the schoolhouse grounds with Cronwell when some strikers began following and taunting them, waving their cane knives in the air threateningly. The sharpshooters fired upon the strikers when they saw the men try to attack Cronwell. The men shot dead ten strikers in self-defense, while four sheriffs suffered casualties as a result of stab wounds. Cronwell himself was injured but survived. He was going to rescue the two and grabbed a hold of them and began to run. When they were chased by strikers, that's when the shooting started. They just started killing the Filipinos. The Hana Pepe massacre derailed the Filipino labor movement. Though it may seem strange to us, in 2017 there was no public outcry after the massacre, nor did it inspire any greater worker solidarity. It was not until 1946 that plantations accepted unionized labor with the recognition of the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union. The ILWU organized during World War II and struck the year the war ended, winning improved working conditions and higher pay. That's a long time later, though, a whole generation after the strike in 1924. I would like to send a special thank you to Mika Tyler, who helped me with the Hawaiian pronunciations, even though I still butchered them. Our next one is the Bisbee Deportation of 1917. On July 12, 1917, Watson and 1,185 other men were herded into filthy boxcars by an armed vigilante force in Bisbee, Arizona, and abandoned across the New Mexico border. The Bisbee deportation of 1917 was not only a pivotal event in Arizona labor history, but one that had an effect on labor activities throughout the country. What led to this course of action by the Bisbee authorities? Arizona in the early 1900s was home to huge copper mining operations. The managers and engineers controlling these mines answered primarily to eastern stockholders. During World War I, the price of copper reached unprecedented heights, and the companies reaped enormous profits. By March of 1917, copper sold for 37 cents a pound. It had been 13.5 at the outbreak of World War I in 1914. With 5,000 miners working around the clock, busy was booming. 
to maintain high product levels, the pool of miners was increased from an influx of southern European immigrants. Although the mining companies paid relatively high wages, working conditions for miners were no better than before the copper market crash in 1907 to 1908. Furthermore, the inflation caused by World War I increased the living expenses and eroded any gains the miners had realized in salaries. The mining companies controlled Bisbee not only because they were the primary employers, but because local businesses depended heavily on the mines and miners to survive. Even the local newspaper was owned by one of the major mining companies, Phelps Dodge. Prior to 1917, union activity had repeatedly been stifled between 1906 and 1907, for example. About 1,200 men were fired for supporting a union. Conversely, the Bisbee Industrial Association, an alliance that was pro-company and anti-union, was easily organized around the same time. Finally, in 1916, the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter, formerly the Western Federation of Miners, successfully enrolled 1,800 miners. The Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, presence in Arizona was also increasing. Founded in 1905, the IAWW never recruited more than 5% of the trade units in the country but many others were exposed to its ideas. Some of the IWW tactics, such as advocating slowdowns and sabotage, were of great concern to the controlling interests. In addition, the IWW adopted two successful recruiting practices. They actively recruited miners from minority groups. As a result, the IWW was particularly successful recruiting busy Mexican workers who were routinely given lower-paying jobs outside of the mine. The IWW was also successful recruiting Southern European immigrants who were allowed in the mines but given lower-paying jobs. On June 24, 1917, the IWW presented the Bisbee Mining Companies with a list of demands. These demands included improvements to safety and working conditions, such as requiring two men on each machine and an end to blasting in the mines during shifts. Demands were also made to end discrimination against members of labor organizations and the unequal treatment of foreign and minority workers. Furthermore, the unions wanted a flat wage system to replace sliding scales tied to the market price of copper. The copper companies refused all IWW demands using the war effort as justification. As a result, a strike was called, and by June 27th, roughly half of the busy workforce was on strike. The Citizens Protective League, an anti-union organization formed during a previous labor dispute, was resurrected by local businessmen and put under the control of Sheriff Harry Wheeler. A group of miners of loyal to the mining companies also formed the Workmen's Loyalty League. On July 11th, Secret meetings of these two so-called vigilante groups were held to discuss ways to deal with the strike and the strikers. The next day, starting at 2 a.m., calls were made to loyalty leaguers as far away as Douglas, Arizona. By 5 a.m., about 2,000 deputies assembled. All wore white armbands to distinguish them from other mining workers. No federal or state officials were notified of the vigilante's plans. The Western Union Telegraph Office was seized, preventing any communications to the town. At 6.30 a.m., Sheriff Harry Wheeler gave orders to begin the roundup. Throughout busy, men were roused from their beds, their houses, and the streets. Though armed, the vigilantes were instructed to avoid violence. However, reports of beatings, robberies, vandalism, and abuse of women later surfaced. 
Two men died during the roundup. James Brew shot loyalty leaguer Arson McRae after warning McRae he would shoot anyone who attempted to take him. Brew was in turn shot and killed by men accompanying McRae. The vigilantes rounded up 1,000 men, many of whom were not strikers or even miners, and marched them two miles to the Warren ballpark. There they were surrounded by armed loyalty leaguers and urged to quit the strike. Anyone willing to put on a white armband was released. At 11 a.m., a train arrived and 1,186 men were loaded aboard boxcars inches deep in manure. Also boarding were 186 armed guards. A machine gun was mounted on the top of the train. The train traveled from Bisbee to Columbus, New Mexico, where it was turned back because there was no accommodations for so many men. On its return trip, the train stopped at Hermanus, New Mexico, where the men were abandoned. A later train brought water and food rations, but the men were left without shelter until July 14th when U.S. troops arrived. The troops escorted the men to facilities in Columbus. Many were detained for several months. Several months after the deportation, President Woodrow Wilson set up a Federal Mediation Commission to investigate the Bisbee deportation. The commission discovered that no federal law applied. It referred the issue to the state of Arizona while recommending that such events be made criminal by federal statute. They did hold that the copper companies were at fault in the deportation at the IWW. The state of Arizona took no action against the copper companies. Approximately 300 deportees brought civil suits against the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad and the copper companies. None of these suits came to trial because of -of out-of-court settlements. Suits were also filed in state court against 224 vigilantes. Sadly, the only suit brought to trial ended in a not-guilty verdict. The rest of the cases were dismissed. The Everett Massacre Sunday, November 5, 1916 marked the bloodiest battle in Pacific Northwest labor history. On that day, About 300 members of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, boarded the steamers Verona and Callista from Seattle and headed north towards Port Gardner Bay. The IWW, or Wobblies, planned a public demonstration in Everett that afternoon to be held on the corner of Hewitt and Whitmore, a spot commonly used by street speakers. Hoping to gain converts to the dream of one big union, the Wobblies began street speaking in Everett during a local shingles weavers strike. Encountering brutal suppression by local law officers, free speech soon became the dominant issue. The number of demonstrators and the violence of the response from law enforcement grew as the weeks wore on. On November 5th, word reached Everett that a group of armed anarchists was coming to burn their town. 200 citizen deputies under the authority of Snohomish County Sheriff Donald McRae repel the invaders. The Verona arrived first, pulling in alongside the dock. McRae asked, Who is your leader? When he was told, We are all the leaders, he informed passengers that they could not land. A single shot was fired, followed by minutes of chaotic shooting. Whether the first shot came from the boat or dock was never determined. Passengers aboard the Verona rushed to the opposite side of the ship, nearly capsizing the vessel. Bullets pierced the pilot house, and the Verona's captain struggled to back it out of port. The Callista returned to Seattle without trying to land. On the dock, deputies Jefferson Beard and Charles Curtis lay dying, and 20 others, including the sheriff, were wounded. 
On the Verona's deck, Wobblies Hugo Gerlitt, Abraham Ribinowitz, Gus Johnson, and John Looney were dead, and Felix Barron lay dying, while the official IWW toll was listed as five dead and 27 wounded, it is likely that as many as 12 Wobblies lost their lives. Their bodies surreptitiously recovered from the bay at a later date. National Guard troops were sent to Everett and Seattle, and terror hung over Everett for days. 74 wobbly passengers aboard the two steamers were arrested upon their return to Seattle and were eventually taken to the Snohomish County Jail in Everett. All were released but one teamster, Thomas Tracy. Tracy was charged with murdering deputies Curtis and Beard but was acquitted after a dramatic and much publicized trial. In hindsight, one can see that a confrontation had been in the making for some time. Everett was an industrial mill town with a predominance of lumber and shingle mills. Workers faced long hours in dangerous working conditions. Accidents were so common that it was said a shingle weaver could be recognized by his missing fingers. Lost in accidents with unguarded saws. Cedar dust permeated the workplace and many workers contracted cedar asthma. Some lost their lives in horrible industrial accidents. Shingle economy operated in a boom and bust cycle and wages were unsteady. For these reasons, much of the city's male workforce was unionized by the early 1900s. Labor support was so strong in Everett that in January of 1909, the region's labor journal began publications from the local union hall on Lombard and Everett gained regional prominence for its union strength. In the spring of 1916, the shingle economy had recovered from a sharp recession, yet workers in Everett were not receiving scale pay. They struck in hopes of regaining their 1914 wage scale. Proud of their status as trade workers, they were often at odds with the radical Wobblies who wanted to create a union that included unskilled workers in their ranks. The Wobblies had come to Everett to proclaim their message on numerous occasions. A group of 40 street speaker Wobblies had been taken by deputies to an area known as Beverly Park, where they were brutally beaten and told to get out of town. Despite severe injuries, some were forced to walk the 25-mile interurban track to Seattle. The Wobblies vowed to return in greater number to show solidarity for their cause. Clearly, neither side expected that escalating confrontations would culminate in the tragedy remembered as Everett Massacre, Everett's Bloody Sunday. The Charleston Five Speaking of the Charleston Five, five dock workers and members of black-led local 1422 of the International Longshoremen's Association were targeted with felony convictions after a picket line fracas with police on January 2000. Charleston, South Carolina. The nostalgic flourishes of Charleston reflects a deeper tone in the port city ran by a good old boys network just the way one might expect in a state that keeps the very senior Senator Strom Thurmond propped in Congress, and whose fondness for the old way kept the Confederate battle flag flying over the state capitol until 2014. The old ways are cute, but integration in the global economy pays the bills. Harboring vessels from nine of the world's ten biggest shipping lines, Charleston is the fourth busiest container port of the country. So for the state leaders, stakes were high when, in January 2000, 
150 members of the International Longshoremen's Association Local 1422 held a militant picket to protest the use of non-union labor by a small renegade shipping line on the Charleston docks. The demonstration soon escalated into a violent face-off between authorities and the workers, five of whom now face trial for felony writing charges in what has become one of the most closely watched southern labor battles in over a decade and which speaks volumes about the economic and political struggles at the heart of the South today. The minds of Southern elite, both traditional and modern, milled on a common program, pro-corporate economics and racially coded politics, the only question for debate being the appropriate proportions of the two. Some two hours inland from the coast, 5,000 spirited demonstrators gathered on the state capitol in Columbia to protest what they saw as the latest manifestation of this unholy alliance, the case of the Charleston Five. For over 200 years, the Charleston docks have been worked by generations of African-American labor, and four of the five facing charges are black, making the crackdown on the ILA's flashpoint for labor and freedom struggles. This has got to be the biggest labor rally in Columbia since the 1930s. But also for the range of participants, buses from North Carolina, Georgia, and even New York delivered dozens of union locals who militantly declared their solidarity. The rally also attracted a sizable showing of Seattle Generation protesters, sans handkerchiefs, and several left grouplets who ringed the demonstration. Newspapers held high, and in South Carolina, where labor rights are civil rights, the program featured leaders of the civil rights establishment. It was in 1821 that a recently freed slave in Charleston, Denmark Vesey, having bought his way out of chains, began planning a slave revolt to free the rest. Vesey had originally planned to spark rebellion throughout South Carolina through agitation, which would hopefully spread to undermine the South's entire plantation complex. But he grew impatient and began organizing his own uprising. It almost worked. By the next year, nearly all the slaves in plantations surrounding Charleston were prepared to join the revolt. But a day before the insurrection, one slave betrayed Vesse, who, along with five associates, were quickly tried and hanged. Once Vesse's intricate plan became known, it struck fear into the planter class. The public execution of Vesse and his compatriots was seen as critical in convincing slaves across the South to think twice before daring to act for their freedom. The port picket plan by ILA Local 1422 in January of 2000 was, of course, much less ambitious, but one wouldn't know it from the response of law enforcement officials. What exactly transpired on that chilly day is now a matter of legal dispute, and the workers' legal team is staying silent as the Charleston Five await trial, probably this fall. What is known is that the trouble began in October of 1999 when the small-time Nordana shipping line notified local 1422 that it was ending its 23-year relationship with the union and would be using non-union labor to work its ships. A couple peaceful pickets followed, but eventually state officials decided it was time to show which side they were on. On January 20th of the next year, as the Nordania ship Godsborg rolled into harbor with 20 non-union workers prepared to unload its cargo, 150 ILA picketers greeted the ship to express their dissatisfaction. Also on hand to the surprise of the ILA workers were massed 600 paramilitary-style officers representing law enforcement agencies from local cops to the highway patrol. 
The show of force was dazzling. Police helicopters hovered overhead. Land units rode on horses and in other armor vehicles. Canine units held snarling dogs at bay. Black-clothed police squads stood poised with beanbag bullets. Patrol boats cruised the waterside of the terminal, apparently saving off a possible Union invasion by sea. As the saying goes, when you prepare for war, that's what you get. Some say a longshoreman made the first move trampling a local cop's foot. Others say the cops pushed into the group of picketers first. Whatever the spark, the fight was on. Although given the imbalance in numbers and firepower, the fracas was fairly brief. All in all, the skirmish itself was a relatively minor footnote in the nation's history of bloody labor battles. What the Charleston longshoremen could not have calculated in the role political ambition would play in determining their fate, namely the political ambitions of South Carolina's Attorney General, Charlie Condon. In the case of the Charleston longshoremen, Condon saw political gold. A crackdown on the ILA would not only bolster his law and order credentials, but make a similarly clear statement about the place of blacks and workers in Condon, South Carolina, where he announced his intention to run for governor this past March. Such ambitions explain why, in February of last year, as Charleston's authorities were quietly letting the cases against the dock workers slide, the South Carolina television viewers were treated to an unusually strident piece of political propaganda. The state singled out what were to become the Charleston Five and served them with laundry list of charges including felony rioting, conspiracy to riot, two assault cases, and resisting arrest. As for Nadanya, they joined with WSI, a stevedoring company that supplies the non-union workers to sue Local 1422 and their sister union, Checkers and Clerks Local 1771, for $1.5 million in alleged financial losses. But last April, the union bargained with Nordana to establish a new small boat agreement which holds union wages levels, but which loosens union standards for hours and staffing levels. Back on the Charleston waterfront, the port is still humming. The dock workers of Local 1422, including the Charleston 5, are back at work, loading and unloading the fortunes of the global south. But the city seems haunted by a new consciousness of labor's power to shape shipping port economics by fear of what this power, tied to freedom and worker struggles the world over, may spell for the South's future. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Mm-hmm.